So I want you to think about this, just answer this in your mind. What would you say is the hardest task that God asks of you? What's the most difficult thing that God requires of you? You might say uh, telling other people about Jesus. Maybe those of you who are more introverted, that just terrifies you. The idea of sharing the gospel with somebody. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's Bible reading. You hear Clint uh, recommend books and you're like, seriously? I've got to read about God regularly? But you know you want to grow in the Word, but just the idea of daily Bible reading sounds hard. Maybe it's uh, loving one another. That's a big one. There are people who are easy to love, but you can count probably on both hands right now. Ten people in your life that are difficult to love. So what would you say is the most difficult thing that God asks you to do? Well, I've been a Christian uh, for like 18 years now. And I've talked to a lot of other friends who have been Christians some, some uh, longer than others. And it seems like the hardest task for all of us is prayer. And what's interesting about that is it's also the easiest, uh, or it's also the simplest thing, right? You can define prayer in three words. You ready? Talking to God. Anyone could do it. You don't need a degree. You can do it anywhere. You don't need to have this sort of rich biblical knowledge. Young people can do it. Old people can do it. Yet, for whatever reason, it seems to be the most difficult thing for us to do. Why is that? I think there's a number of reasons. One is that we're just easily distracted. I think every age is distracted by certain things that are going on, but it seems like in our cultural moment, the idea of just, uh, we have access in our hands to supercomputers, like endless information, Netflix, Disney+, Hulu, right? All of these things are calling for our attention, not to mention sort of trying to keep up with the rat race of life. So we're distracted from pursuing God in prayer. Another one is self-reliance. Why, why would we need to pray, I can do what needs to be done for me? Or I can pay for what needs to be done for me, right? Money can solve my problems. My own sort of uh, self-sufficiency can get this done. Paul Miller reflects on this. He says, because we can do life without God, praying seems nice but unnecessary. Money can do what prayer does, and it's quicker and less time-consuming. Our trust in ourselves and in our talents makes us structurally independent of God. And as a result, exhortations to pray don't stick. Now this morning as we look at Psalm 16, what we're seeing is a king. King David wrote this psalm. And he's a man who's experienced everything that we just said, though in different ways. Think about that. He was distracted. If you look at David's life, he was distracted at times by his sin. He was distracted by family issues. He was distracted by his work. He was the king, right? He was also tempted with self-reliance, right? He was the ruler of a great nation. He could have anything he want as a king. But as we look at David and as we look at this psalm, what we see is a man of prayer. And in this psalm, what we're going to do is we're going to learn from David how to bring our soul from a, that place of self-reliance and that place of distraction and really that place of helplessness to a place of hap happiness. That's what David does in this song. And I want, what I want us to do is think of this just in the next few minutes as a, as a building. And there are four floors to this building. And what David is going to do is each floor, he's going to reflect on a truth about God that draws us to prayer. And what it does is, is it moves him to the top of the building. The bottom floor that he starts on is a place of helplessness. It's a place of distraction. It's a place of self-reliance. But through prayer, he moves up. He moves up. 
And on the top of the building is a place of soaring joy. And the desire for us this morning is that we would be motivated. This is not a a sermon on on the mechanics of prayer. Instead, these truths are meant to motivate us to say, oh, why would we not want to spend time with God in prayer? And so the plan is to do this for about 20 minutes, preacher's famous last words, and then actually practice this together, spend 20 minutes praying. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump in. That's not a lot of time to to plunge the depths of these 11 verses. But the first thing we see here is this. Prayer is taking refuge in God. Look at verse 1. He says, preserve me, O God. That's his petition. He begins with this request. This is the cry of a desperate man. He's saying, God, keep me. That's what preservation is. Now, we're not told the circumstance of his request. Maybe, maybe... um, Uh, Maybe he was abandoned by his friends, that happened in his life. Maybe he's just overwhelmed by the weight of his sin or family turmoil. We, We don't know what it is. We get a hint later in verse 10 what he was afraid of. But what we do know is that he is brought to a place where he recognized his insufficiency. The king of one of the greatest nations is brought to a place where all he can do is cry out to God and take refuge in him. And notice what he does when he realizes that he's insufficient. He doesn't try to pull himself up by the bootstraps. What does he do? He goes to God. He prays. He he calls God his refuge, his protection, his safe haven. Uh, My wife Lauren's grandmother lives in Mississippi, and where she lives has uh, has its fair share of tornadoes. And so they built several years ago... A, uh, a storm shelter outside of the house. And it's this small cement building with a steel door and the foundations go down deep. And the purpose of that building is when a storm comes, when a tornado's coming, what do you do? You get out of the house and you go straight to the building and you, you close the door. And as the storm comes, it may knock everything down, but what will still stand? That storm shelter will stand. That's the purpose of what it is. That's a great illustration of what David is doing here. He's saying... God is my storm shelter. We don't know what's causing this, but what we do know is he realizes that he's insufficient and he goes to God in prayer. Do you recognize your insufficiency? You say, insufficient for what? Everything. Do do you realize that you can't be who God's called you to be, that you can't function the way God has called you to function, that you can't live as he's called you to live without him and his grace? See, if you don't realize that you're insufficient, then you will not pray. Because you don't ask for help unless you realize you need it, right? So David goes to God as his refuge. And so this is a simple application to us. What what, what do you do? Go to God in prayer. What What do we pray? Well, this is a very simple prayer. In Hebrew, he says, preserve me, O God. That's how we translate it. But if you're looking for something to pray, here's what you can pray. God, help You may say, oh, I'm not an eloquent prayer. That's okay. All that David is doing here is saying, God, please help me. And what he does when he does this is he brings his soul up a floor. He goes from a place of helplessness to a place of safety and refuge in God. We're not told that circumstances change. We're not told that he even has joy yet. But what he does know is God is his refuge. Recognize your insufficiency and you will be motivated to pray. Then we see why he goes to God as his refuge. This is number two. Prayer is acknowledging God as your greatest treasure. So number one, God's our refuge. Number two, God is our greatest treasure. Notice what he says in verse two. I say to the Lord, 
you are my Lord. And there's two different words here in verse 2 for God. The first one you notice is all caps. It's Yahweh. It's the name of God. The second one is Adonai. So it's as if he's saying, I say to God, you are my sovereign. You're my ruler. And then he goes on and says, I have no good apart from you. In other words, everything I have in my life is because of God. That's what motivates David to pray. But David's saying more than that. He's not just saying God's the giver of good gifts. He's saying, no, God is goodness itself. He's saying, this giver is good. He's the greatest treasure, not just the gifts he gives. So here's the logic. He's saying, God, you're my everything. You're my treasure. Why then would I go anywhere else but to you? Why wouldn't I pray? Why wouldn't I access the greatest treasure before me? And he goes on, verse 3. He recognizes as he's praying that he's not the only one who sees this. This is true of the people of God. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I love this. As David is praying privately, as he's meditating on the goodness of God, he realizes that he's not alone, and so he delights in the people of God as well. And he shows us something important about prayer and something important about treasuring God. Treasuring God is a community project. It's something we do together. And so he's encouraged as he reflects on not just him, but I'm not the only one who needs refuge in God. I'm not the only one who's insufficient. Right? That's what we're doing here. Right? This is not, our church is not just about your personal experience with God. It has a vertical aspect, yes, but it's about us collectively together as a family, being a people of prayer, being a people who treasures God and relies on Him, right? And so then we see, we move on to verse 4, David contrasts this treasure of God with uh, the empty promises of the world. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, nor take their name upon my lips. What he's doing here, I think of the illustration of the, those old weight scales. You guys know it? Just nod your head if you're with me. Right? And you put something on one side, you put something on the other to kind of balance it out. It's as if David's saying, listen, I'm going to put treasuring God right here, God and all his goodness, and then I'm going to put all the false gods that people trust in around me on this side. And just so you know, God outweighs those every single time. So I'm not even going to pursue those. I am going to find my treasure in God. Why? Verse 5 and 6. Because God's my portion. He's content in his life. He has all that he needs in God. And the the language here, we don't have time to dive into it, but it, it deals with this allotment of land. He's saying, I have something far better than land. I have something far better than any inheritance that an earthly father can give me. I have God. Why in the world would I not want to spend time communing with him in prayer. Can we say this? Can we say that God is our greatest treasure? Again, just like God is our refuge. If we can't say God is our greatest treasure, we will not pray. But here's the flip side of that. If we do not pray, we will not learn that God is our greatest treasure. So don't wait. Don't wait for some feeling to motivate you to pray objectively see this truth. God is the greatest treasure. Therefore, even when I don't feel like it, I'm going to give myself to prayer and pursuing him. And as you do that, you will see the beauty and treasure of who God is. Number three, 
we see then, David moves on to say that prayer is going to God as your counselor. So David's in a good place here. He's moving up the building. He's taking refuge in God, right? Then he's moved up again. He's seeing God as his treasure. And now he's telling us that God gives him counsel in verse 7. He says, his heart instructs him in the night. Now, what, what does that mean? Here's what it means. Here's what we know of David. He was a man of God's word. He's hidden his, his, God's word in his heart that he may not sin against God. So what David's saying here when he, when he says his heart instructs him in the night He's saying that he's teaching his heart the word of God. He's meditating on the word of God and filling his mind and heart with it constantly so that he's counseled directly by God himself, right? David knows what Thomas Watson told us, right? In every line, God is speaking directly to you. And so this, this is, some call this the art of preaching to yourself, Right, what I'm doing right now is preaching. You are also preachers. You should take the truths of God, and when you don't believe them, you should tell them to yourselves from God's word. He's praying God's word, which is what we're going to do together in a moment. Right, so this calls us to hear the word, know the word, study the word, memorize it, meditate on it, so that you can counsel your soul like David is doing. And when you do that, God is counseling you directly because this is his word. That's what David is calling us to here. George Mueller was a, a pastor in England in the 1800s, and he's known for, mostly for his orphan care, but, but for his um, extreme uh, just commitment to prayer. And here's what he says about his, day, his morning devotion times, his, his times of getting up, spending time in prayer and the Word. He says, The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man may be nourished. I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and to the meditation on it. See, what he's saying is I can't pray rightly without the word of God because it's a conversation. Me praying is, is me talking to God the word of God is him talking to me through his word. So if we want to be people of prayer, if we want to be counseled directly by God, then the word must be deep within us. And then he goes on, verse 8. Notice, we're on the top floor now. He says, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Now I want you to notice the difference. Verse 1, there's this petition of desperation. Preserve me, O God. And through prayer, where is he now? I shall not be shaken. You see what he's done with his soul through prayer. And that leads us to the fourth and final observation. Prayer is clinging to Christ as your confident joy. So we've seen God as our refuge. Prayer is taking refuge in God. Prayer is acknowledging God as our greatest treasure. Three, going to God as your counselor. And four, clinging to Christ as your confident joy. Look at verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices and my flesh dwells secure. It's like he's flown through the roof of the building now. He's soaring now. He's joyful. He says, therefore, because God's my refuge, because he's my treasure, because he's my counselor, I have confident joy. And then in verse 10, we learn what he was afraid of. We get a hint at it. He says, for, here's why I have joy. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Think death. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Now, this is interesting. Because David is saying, I have confidence now because I will not die. 
But, but David died, and David was buried. So, so what is he talking about here? Well, this is where uh, the Bible is so helpful at interpreting the Bible because when we go to the New Testament and we see the Holy Spirit fill the church in the first sermon at Pentecost, Peter gets up and he preaches the gospel as the church's birth. And listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verses 30 through 32. Being therefore a prophet, he's talking about David in Psalm 16, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, David, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, to death, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. See, while this psalm is about David's journey to joy, it's ultimately about Christ's journey on our behalf. Christ became one of us. That's what we just celebrated, right? He found refuge in God perfectly. Christ perfectly treasured God above all things. Christ perfectly heeded the counsel of God in obedience all the way to the cross and died in our place. But, verse 10, God did not abandon his soul to death or let him see corruption. He raised him from the dead. Psalm 16 points us directly to the gospel. And now, for those of us who, like David, we trust in Christ, death, the greatest enemy, is no longer a dead end. It's a doorway into the presence of God. And notice how this ends. Verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is the greatest motivation for us to be a people of prayer. He has made known to us the pathway of life through Jesus in the gospel. We can experience communion, relationship with God, our greatest treasure. Why would we not want to pursue him in this way? And so as we, as we close and move into a, a time of prayer, let me just encourage you to pray this way in your own life. Let this psalm, for that, mat, that matter, all of the psalms be a guide to you in prayer and how to point yourself to the gospel And then if you haven't, let me just plead with you. If you've yet to look to Christ in faith, do that. Maybe maybe it's for the first time, but for those of us who are followers of Jesus as well, we need to continually be looking to him in faith, continually be reminded of the eternal joy that we have in his presence, both in the future, but also, friends, today. This is offered to us today. 